Good morning, Four Corners. We miss our wives. Many of our wives are gone this morning. Not all of them, but many of them. So we realize on a morning like this, having to get up uh, with the kids and handle uh, oatmeal or Cheerios or whatever else you do, getting dressed and all of that, we realize how indispensable these lovely ladies are to us, to our household. So we praise God for them. Uh, The ladies have been away. For those of you who are unaware of what I'm talking about, they are away at, many of them are away at a women's retreat. And so they have been talking about the word and the power of the word in the life of a Christian. And uh, I've been going back and forth with Jennifer, my wife, by text, and she has just said some really encouraging things about all that God is doing through that time together or has done through that time together. So we praise God for that. And we, as we think about what they are looking at, what they've looked at over the weekend, the Word, we come to this period in our service where we are instructed from the Word. One of the ways we worship God is through being instructed by His Word. This is no less worship what we're doing now than what we just did in singing praises to God. It's all worship. Our listening, our preaching, our praying, our singing, all of it is exaltation of our God. And so that's what we are continuing to do now in this service. I want to thank Trey for preaching God's Word to us last week. It was such an edifying sermon, such a helpful and uh, just uh, very clear exposition Of God's Word. And a helpful reminder to us that suffering for the sake of Christ really is something that the Christian should expect. That suffering for Christ should be the expectation of God's people. And for many throughout the world, it is very practically the expectation of God's people. But what an encouragement to know that we never suffer for Christ. Without that gaze, that gaze of Christ. We talked after the sermon last week, a, a couple of folks out in the foyer, we were just discussing whether when, when all of God's people suffered throughout the ages, have they all had the vision that Stephen had? The Son of Man, there glorified, standing the right hand of the Father. And uh, I don't think we, we really know. We know that many have suffered almost to the point of death and have not reported that sort of vision. We, of course, don't know what those who have died for Christ have experienced. But what we know is that whether they can look up into heaven and see Christ, we know that as Christians who suffer for Christ, we perpetually have that gaze of the heart, a heart that looks to Jesus, the author And finisher of our faith. So we know that we never suffer without that gaze. And we never suffer for Christ in vain. As Trey pointed out there throughout his sermon. But especially at the end. That our suffering for Christ is one of God's premier means of advancing the gospel. So we we never suffer for Christ without that gaze. We never suffer for Christ in vain. And so we praise God for that. Those wonderful reminders. If you would go with me now to Genesis chapter 41. We are continuing to work our way through Genesis. We are in the latter part of the book. This this 
bigger unit, which looks at the story of Joseph. And uh, the more I've gone through this, I think we should say Joseph and his brothers. This, this really is an account across the board. And the Judah account, which seems to, to just jump in there and, and uh, come out of nowhere, I think reminds us of that, that this entire portion going back all the way to chapter 37, is the story of Joseph and his brothers, the interweaving of their stories together. And we have seen many twists and turns in the story of Joseph. He is thrown into a pit and sold into slavery by jealous brothers who hate him because he is his father's favorite. He is taken down as a slave into Egypt and yet raised up to the highest status within his master's household as a slave, flourishing in all of his work and then slandered by his master's wife. His master Potiphar's wife says that he has tried to come in and and make advances to her. And, of course, Joseph is thrown down into the pit of prison unjustly due to this false accusation. And yet he is raised up to the highest position within the prison. We really do feel like we're on a roller coaster in the story of Joseph. Every time he goes down, he comes back up. And then in that prison, we saw two special prisoners from Pharaoh's court. Joseph interprets their dreams. They're perplexed. They have these confusing dreams. Joseph interprets their dreams. We have the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. The cupbearer will be restored, but the chief baker will be executed. And as Joseph is telling the chief cupbearer the interpretation of his dream, He says to him, please remember me when you go back to your position before Pharaoh. Please remember me when you are released and restored. That I might get out of this awful place. I've been put here unjustly. So we saw Joseph make this plea to the cupbearer. But of course, as we remember, Joseph is quickly forgotten and left in prison for two more years. Until... Something incredible happens. The Pharaoh himself has a set of dreams. No one among all the magicians of Egypt, among all of the dream interpreters, with all of their dream interpretation books, with all of their incantations and deliberations, none of them is able to tell Pharaoh the interpretation of his dream. And it's at this point that the cupbearer remembers Joseph. Finally, but of course, God's timing. He remembers Joseph and he gives an account of Joseph's ability to interpret dreams to Pharaoh. Pharaoh brings Joseph from the prison and Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dreams. Pharaoh had had dreams about grain and about cows, seven ears of grain overshadowed seven ears, healthy ears of grain, overshadowed by seven awful, thin, unhealthy ears of grain, seven cows, healthy and strong, eaten up by seven thin, gaunt cows. And Joseph informs Pharaoh that these dreams are one, two dreams, the same thing, certain, because God has given it twice. And what it means is that there will be seven years 
of plenty in the land. It's followed by seven years of famine. And so Joseph offers some advice. He says to Pharaoh that he should appoint a man, a wise and discerning man, who would oversee the process of gathering a a 20% tax each year of the, the produce of the land so that in the year of famine it would be stored up for the people to eat. So that's where we left off a couple of weeks ago in Genesis. So what what now? Where does the story go now? Well, I think in many ways today is the moment that we've all been waiting for in the point of the story. Joseph is exalted over all of Egypt. And that's the title for the sermon this morning, Exalted Over Egypt. As Kent Hughes puts it in his commentary, Joseph is brought from the pit to the pinnacle. After 13 years of sorrow, trouble, pain, affliction, and I'm taking these words from the Joseph narrative, as well as from Psalm 105 and other portions of Scripture. I mean, this is a time of intense suffering for Joseph. He has been kidnapped. Now, you, you, you have to think about that for a moment. At 17 years old, he's kidnapped, but he's kidnapped by his brothers, by his own brothers. He loves his father very much. He's been jerked out of his father's house. And now for 13 years, he's been away enslaved in Egypt. We mustn't forget through all of God's presence and all of God's providence, we cannot forget that this has indeed been a time of suffering, sorrow, pain, and grief for this man, Joseph. But the sovereign God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, in this story we see, is preparing to rescue and to relocate his people by exalting Joseph over Egypt during a time of great famine. That's what we find in our story for today. This is a reassuring story, I think, in many ways. And perhaps as you've gone through the the story of Joseph, you have become fascinated with it, uh, maybe freshly. Maybe you, you encountered this story when you were a child, as I did, and it just kind of captivated me. It took over my mind. This was one of the, the greatest stories of the Bible when I was a kid. It just, it just sucked me in. I don't know what it was about it, and I've reflected on that a little bit, but maybe that's the case for you. This is one of those towering Bible stories that are taught to children. But maybe this is kind of your first time. Maybe you did not grow up in church, or if you did, you just weren't taught this story. And so this is the first time that you have encountered the story of God's great providence in the life of Joseph. And maybe there are many things that you have seen here, many ways that God has impacted you about his glory, about his purposes, many ways that he has shown you his character through this story. But there is one thing that I want to highlight this morning as we move into our text for today that tells us how reassuring a story like this is. It assures us that there are answers, listen to this, there are answers to all of the what and why questions of life. Every single one of us in this room has what and why questions. Or maybe right now you don't have too many what or why questions, but you will. Anyone who goes through this life that is hard, as 
Moses says in one of the Psalms that this life that is hard and 70 years, maybe 80 years on account of strength. Anyone who goes through this life in a fallen, broken world will have many what and why questions. What is happening to me? What is going on in my life? Why is this happening to me? Why this instead of that? Why this set of circumstances? Perplexing, seemingly unanswerable questions that we face. And a story like this reminds us that there are answers to every single one of those what and why questions. And they are hidden, oftentimes, they are hidden from us in the mind of our wise and omnipotent God. We don't have the answers to all of those questions, but God does. And they will come to light in his time or maybe only in eternity. But all of them have answers. And what this means is that we are not mere pawns of the universe. We are not moving through this life based on chance or on fate. And maybe you operate in life that way. You, you say that you believe in a sovereign God. You believe in a God who made all things and sustains all things. What is God? God is the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. As the second catechism, I'm sure all of you got that down pat. As the second catechism question that we're looking at says, he sustains everything. He sustains you every moment. You woke up this morning because God was sustaining you. But maybe... As you face the difficulties of life, the universal difficulties of life, you start to slip down into a kind of pagan, unbelieving mindset where really life's just carrying you along by chance. It's a matter of luck. This will happen or that will happen. It's just a matter of chance or fate. Not the workings of a wise and sovereign heavenly Father, a story like this reminds us that that's not the case. It's not chance. It's not fate. Even if we go to the grave with no answers, God is still working and there are answers. If you would please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Genesis chapter 41 verses 38 to 57 I started in verse 38. Well, I ended last time, verse 37, because I wanted to tie that in. But I'll go ahead and begin with verse 37 in reading. This is God's word. It is perfect and profitable for his people. And it is able to make us wise unto salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. This proposal pleased Pharaoh, speaking of the interpretations and the advice And all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. 
Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name, Zaphonath paneah and he gave him in marriage Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly. And he gathered up all the food of these seven years which occurred in the land of Egypt and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea. We've seen that language before. Until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the first Manasseh. For he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim. For God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end. And the seven years of famine began to come. As Joseph had said, there was famine in all lands. But in all the land of Egypt, there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. You can go ahead and be seated. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his grace, his blessings, as we dig into his word. Our sovereign God, Lord, oh Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Father, one day you will fill the earth with your glory through Christ and the shining forth of the spotless blamelessness of his bought people. We will shine like the stars of heaven, Jesus tells us. Father, we praise you that this wondrous glory awaits us, as Stan prayed earlier. That these sufferings, the sufferings of this present time, are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us on that day. Father, we thank you that we gather this morning humbly as fallen people who have been shown the greatest mercy, that you have regenerated our hearts. You have taken us from a state of lawlessness, of godlessness, of selfishness, 
We were once called darkness. We were dead in trespasses and sins. But God, Lord, you made us alive together with Christ and you seated us with him in the heavenly places. You have saved us, God. We praise you this morning for this redemption that you have given us through Christ. We pray this morning as we gather and as we look into your word that we would be encouraged in our faith as we see the writer of Hebrews 11 looking back over the history of the people of God and the faith shown by the people of God and how it glorifies you. As we look at Joseph's faith, we are, we are pulled towards the life of faith that you call us to. As we consider your, your faithfulness, God, to him, the grace which you worked in his heart, the promises which you were fulfilling and bringing to pass, we are reminded that we can trust you Lord, thank you for your word. It is holy. It is our food. It is sufficient. It is necessary. It is inspired. It is infallible. It is inerrant. It makes us wise, joyful. It revives the soul. It makes us fruitful like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that we do, we prosper in the word. And so, Father, we ask your blessing on this time. In Jesus' name, amen. So there are three movements in this latter part of chapter 41 that I want to look at this morning. Three movements to this account of Joseph's exaltation, and you'll see those up there on the screen. We see three things, favor, fruitfulness, famine, very clear from the text as you look at it and divide it up. These three frames or three movements as we go through the exaltation of Joseph. So let's look first at favor. And to do this, I want to draw your minds to the details of verses 38 to 45. So I do want to read those again and take a look at them in detail. So favor, verses 38 to 45. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot, and they called out before him, Bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphonath paneah and he gave him in marriage Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. So Joseph went out, over the land of Egypt. We have already seen God calls Joseph to find favor in the eyes of Potiphar and the prison warden. And we've already seen God put favor towards Joseph in the heart of Pharaoh back in verse 37. 
Verse 37, this proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. So when you get to verse 37, you simply have Joseph standing in in front of Pharaoh. He has interpreted the dream, the dreams, and he has given some advice that you imagine Pharaoh looking around, shaking his head at his servants and everyone else. He's shaking their head. They are pleased with what Joseph has proposed. But what we find in this passage goes far beyond Pharaoh merely being pleased with Joseph. Here we see not just favor, but extreme favor. The greatest amount of favor that one could possibly imagine in such a situation. And this takes the form of two actions. Two actions. Pharaoh affirms Joseph, and then he appoints him to a position over all of Egypt. So we see affirmation and appointment. So I want to take some time to look at each of those as we try to order this set of verses. So first, affirmation. Affirmation. Pharaoh affirms that Joseph is uniquely filled with God's spirit. Look at what he says in verse 38. Can we find a man like this, In whom is the Spirit of God? Now, what in the world is Pharaoh talking about? I mean, we could Christianize Pharaoh at this point and and understand him to be just fully aware of all that, say, Jacob's household would understand about language like that, the Spirit of God. But that's probably not accurate, similar to what Nebuchadnezzar says to Daniel and and how Nebuchadnezzar responds to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The language is right, but the heart of Pharaoh is steeped in polytheism. In fact, Pharaoh believes himself to be a god, a sort of incarnation of the god Horus, the falcon-headed god in the Egyptian pantheon. And so what Pharaoh means by the spirit of God is probably clouded and colored by all of that ridiculous idolatry. But he nonetheless says it, that this man Joseph is filled with the Spirit of God. And you're wondering to yourself, you know, why, why does he say it this way? And I think the reason is not because he's, he's kind of coming around to worship of God, but he's simply repeating the language of Joseph. Joseph has repeatedly in the space of very short, in a very short space in the dialogue between Joseph and Pharaoh, God is everywhere in Joseph's speech. I want to show you this. So Pharaoh is simply repeating the name that he's heard over and over and over again. He's heard this from Joseph's mouth five times. I want to show you this. You can look at your Bibles to see it. It helps to see it kind of come off the page. Verse 16 God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Verse 25, God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Verse 28, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Verse 32, two occurrences here. The thing is fixed by God and God will shortly bring it about. So the spirit of this God is what Pharaoh is referring to. Pharaoh is recognizing that this God, whoever he is, not known by this Pharaoh, not worshipped by this Pharaoh, 
who worships himself and all of these non-living false deities. Whoever this God is, he is great. He is great and he is powerful and this great and powerful God is present in Joseph. He recognizes at least that much. And I think this tells us something as we try to draw out implications from this text. I think it tells us that God shows himself. Hear this, Christian. God shows himself to the unbelieving world through his indwelling presence with his people. God magnifies his greatness, yes, through the stars. As Paul says in Romans 1, that all people know deep down in their hearts, they know there is a God who made them. They know. They reject. They suppress. They know. And they see it in creation. That cardinal that flies through their backyard. That starry sky at night that gets ignored, yet is, as Psalm 19 says, proclaiming. The sun every day. That nice hot cup of coffee. That nice bite of food. Everything made. The, that, that beautiful face of a newborn child. Everything proclaiming the glory of the maker. And yet, it is the indwelling presence of God with his people that shines the brightest. That's what shines the brightest to people. That's what draws people to God more than the stars is a renewed heart, a renewed life, the presence of God in us. Praise God that as Christians, we are temples of the Holy Spirit. We are temples of the living God. I mean, all you have to do is just spend a little bit of time reading in the book of Exodus, for example, to know how incredible it is to say, as Paul does, that we are temples of the Holy Spirit. When you see all that goes into making sure that people do not approach the temple in a profane manner, And you realize that we are his temples. Praise God for that. How holy we ought to be before the eyes of those who do not know God. How much we ought to reflect his glory within us. And it is because of Joseph's proximity to this God that he is discerning and wise as Pharaoh says more so than any other in the entire kingdom immediately Pharaoh recognizes this about him so verse 39 says since God has shown you all this there is none so discerning and wise as you are And I think this reminds us of something else that we can't lose sight of. And it is that it is the spirit of God who gives wisdom. If you have any wisdom at all, it does not originate with you. Maybe you've got some wisdom in parenting. And you've noticed that. Maybe you've got some wisdom in your workplace. And you've noticed that. Or some wisdom with regard to how to order your schedule and be productive in your life. Whatever it might be, any wisdom that we have does not originate with us. The Spirit of God gives wisdom. 
Exodus 31.3, to go back to Exodus again. It's one of those passages that, that just kind of shocks us when we read it. But it tells us that God gave the Spirit in order to build the various parts of the temple. The Spirit was the means by which even the craftsmanship of the temple, the tabernacle rather, happened. And so Exodus 31.3, God says, I have filled him. Speaking of one of these individuals given that task, I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship. This is humbling because it reminds us this morning, if you, if you are wise, there's a reason Paul says, never be wise in your own sight. There's a reason why we are told that in the scriptures because any little success or wisdom, we've talked about this repeatedly, that we have, we will gloat about that. We'll take hold of that and ascribe it to myself. That's what we do in our sinfulness, in our idolatry. And what we are reminded of here is that wisdom comes from the Lord. Isn't that what James 1 tells us? Ask God and he gives it, Proverbs 2, 6, for the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. And this is what's going on with Joseph. Joseph isn't this very special guy who just has this very special insight. It's God. It's God's presence with him. God chose him. God filled him. And God used him. And guess what? That's exactly what we're told is the, the, the state of a Christian. God chose us. God fills us. And God uses us every day, every week. Pouring forth his wisdom from within us for life. For life and godliness. So we see the affirmation coming from Pharaoh. But we also see the appointment. After affirming Joseph's uniqueness, Pharaoh appoints him to the highest office in the land. A repeated phrase in these verses is over all the land of Egypt. One of the most basic things that we know about studying the Bible, if you're leading a Bible study or anything, is you look for repeated ideas, repeated words, repeated phrases. It's just kind of interpretation or hermeneutics 101. Very basic. If you have something repeated, you know that it is significant. And here we see over and over and over again this repeated phrase worded slightly differently in each of the cases over all the land of Egypt. Joseph practically takes on the authority of the Pharaoh himself. Listen to verse 40 again. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And this appointment is reinforced by what John Calvin calls the insignia of royalty. Joseph has given Pharaoh's signet ring. Just listen to this as they're stacked up. He's given Pharaoh's signet ring, fine linen, a gold chain, the second chariot. It's kind of like, a, it's kind of like the, the, the one that Pharaoh rides in if the other one's being worked on. This is a, the second in line. And he just says, it's yours, Joseph. You ride in the second Chariot, runners going before him, calling out, bow the knee to this man. And everyone on the street bowing down to Joseph as though they were bowing down to Pharaoh himself. His consent is needed for everything that goes on in Egypt. He is given a new name and a prestigious marriage to the daughter of a priest. This place own was the third most important city in ancient Egypt after Memphis and Thebes. This was the great, 
one of the great cities. It was the center of sun worship. The god Ra or Re, the, the center for this idolatry. Heliopolis is what it came to be known as in Greek, the city of the sun. And so here we see this very prestigious marriage that, that Pharaoh takes Joseph and he, he thoroughly makes him Egyptian and thoroughly makes him great in the land. Now, if, if what I've said so far does not blow your socks off, does not shock you beyond measure, because he should, he should, I just want to make it explicit, explicit. The extent of this favor and exaltation is truly remarkable. Joseph, we must remember, is first a foreigner, second a slave, and third a prisoner. You don't get any lower He is like a worm, literally as low into the dirt as you can possibly be from the the seat of the throne of Egypt. Three layers, a foreigner who is a slave, who is a prisoner. And then we read this. What does this tell us? It reminds us that nothing, nothing is impossible with the Lord. Nothing. So whatever it is, whatever it is that you came in this morning thinking is impossible with God. It's impossible. It just can't happen. You're not thinking it's impossible with God because you wouldn't say that in your mind, explicit if you're a believer. But you're, you're, you're acting as though it is in fact impossible. A story like this should remind you, Christian, that there is absolutely nothing impossible with the Lord. If God can do this, he can take care of you. He can take care of you if you're sick. He can take care of you if you've lost a loved one. He can take care of you if you've lost your job. He can take care of you if you're depressed or anxious or you are repeatedly falling to a temptation. He can meet you exactly where you are and he can do mighty things in your life. This is the God we've come here this morning to worship. He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He was there with Joseph in Egypt, and he is right here with us now. So we see Joseph exalted over Egypt through the favor that God gives him in the eyes of Pharaoh. But now we move to our second movement in the text, and that is fruitfulness. Look at verses 46 to 52 with me. 46 to 52. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly. And he gathered up all the food of these seven years which occurred in the land of Egypt and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship in all my father's house. The name of the second he called 
Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. God gives Joseph the ability to interpret dreams accurately, and then he confirms the accuracy of those dreams. This is what we saw in the prison, right? This is what we saw in the prison with the cupbearer and the chief baker. And here again, with Pharaoh's dreams, we get confirmation. That's part of what's going on here, is a confirmation of the accuracy of Joseph's interpretations. This is the seven years of plenty part. Verse 29, going back, verse 29 This is what Joseph said to Pharaoh. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt. Well, here it is. This is the the period of fruitfulness. This is a time of fruitfulness in the produce of the earth and in the progeny of Joseph. So that's what we're going to look at here now. The produce of the earth and the progeny of Joseph. In all of this, we have a picture of fruitfulness. So let's look first at the produce of the earth. Verse 37, we are told that the earth, or verse 47, we are told that the earth produced abundantly. And Joseph, the busy administrator that he is, he sets out on his work of gathering and storing all of this produce in the cities. So you can imagine all of this fruitfulness in the land. And Joseph is overseeing various administrators who are gathering up all of this grain and bringing it into the cities. Because that's where it can be stored adequately. And that's where it can be protected from thieves. So it's brought from all the surrounding towns. You imagine all of these fields and and small little villages around these great cities of Egypt. Many of the ruins of these cities still stand today. They gather up all of this grain and put it into the storehouses of these cities. And the end result is an immeasurable amount of stored grain. Like the sand of the sea. Like a good administrator, Joseph is trying to record it all. You get the impression that he really is trying to measure all of it and put it into the storehouses. And he's, he's keeping all of these diligent records, much like our administrator Doug Cogburn does so well often. Uh, so if you need records or you need anything, Doug is the man to see. He's really the glue that holds this church together in many ways. Thankful for him. But what we have here is an administrator. A person who is doing all that he can to keep things in order, but it's just too much. He can't keep track of all of it. He can't line it all out. It becomes too great to measure. So he just starts heaping it up. Whatever. Just throw it in there. And I think we're meant to see something here. At least the reader of Genesis is meant to go back in the mind. This productivity of the earth for the good of humanity cannot take us back anywhere besides creation, right? I mean, you see this this fruitfulness of the earth. The earth is producing abundantly and you are reminded in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You're reminded that God is the one who formed the earth God is the one who brought vegetation up out of the earth. He breathed into the nostrils of man. And he made woman from man. And he said, I give you all the trees of the garden. Everything was theirs to eat. Except, as we know, one tree. 
We cannot help when we read this to go back to creation. To go back to this good for humankind, which reminds us of our creator. And I think this story situated here, we can't skip over this. It reminds us of two things. One, God's goodness to his creatures. There is a basic goodness from God to his creatures that we find in the opening chapters, the first two chapters of Genesis. But that that goodness of God to his creatures after the fall becomes this remarkable, incredible grace of God to his creatures. Not to say that creation is not itself a grace, but if we are thinking about grace as this kind of undeserved favor in a state of sinfulness after the fall, we are reminded in a story like this that God still looks after the earth. He still looks after us. How many people do we see walking around just enjoying life on their way to hell? No regard for the God who wakes them up every day, gives them water to drink, food to eat. Just relishing in the blessings of life given to them as grace from a holy God to a sinner. Idolizing all of it. It's grace. And when we read a passage like this, we are reminded That this God is good and gracious. And in fulfillment of his promise to Noah. He continues to sustain this earth. None of us deserves that. None of us. The second. We see the progeny of Joseph. The produce of the earth. But now we come to the progeny of Joseph. This time of fruitfulness under Joseph's care is symbolized by fruitfulness in Joseph's family. Do you see that? The earth is abundantly bringing forth its fruit. And then you have Joseph bringing forth two children through his wife, Asenath. The first, he names Manasseh, which sounds like making to forget. The reason is given in verse 51. God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The second son is named Ephraim, which sounds like making fruit. The reason is given in verse 52. For God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Now, what do these two sons remind us of? Well, they bring us back to Abraham, don't they? Do you remember when God sent the angels in to save Lot. Why does the text say that God sent the angels to save Lot? Because of his faithfulness to Abraham. Because of his promises to Abraham. Abraham's dead. He's in the ground. He's in this tomb. Yet God is still being faithful to the promises he made to Abraham. Bringing forth all of these offspring Joseph's sons bring us back to his great-grandfather Abraham and the faithfulness of God to him. Joseph's blessings here must be put in their proper context. And the context is that God is the faithful God of Abraham. One of the most important aspects of this time of fruitfulness is what it demonstrates about Joseph's character. I want to take the spotlight for a moment and I want to look at Joseph in this Passage. Let's look at what is going on with Joseph's character. We see in his preparations, his integrity, his diligence, his compassion. But most importantly, what we see here about Joseph is his faith. He knows the seven years of famine are coming. 
He trusts God's revelation. Do you see that back in verse 25? Listen to what he says to Pharaoh. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There is absolutely no doubt in Joseph's mind that this time of famine is coming. So during this time of plenty, he is acting out of a firm conviction that what God said he's going to do, he's going to do. That is faith. If we want to understand what does faith look like, what does it look like to believe God? Oftentimes we we focus on our emotions. We focus on what we feel. But if we want to know what faith looks like, it is to hear from God and to live in accordance with what we've heard. We hear from God from the Bible. This is God's word and God tells us what's going to happen. He tells us what he's going to do. And what faith looks like is to live, regardless of how we feel, to live knowing that is true. And that's exactly what we see going on here with Joseph. This is a picture of the Christian life. But probably nowhere is this faith more apparent than in the naming of his two sons. Look at what He names them. God has made me forget. God has made me fruitful. This is is amazing. Joseph is at the very top. He is in the prime of his life. You don't get any better than this. I mean, things are great for him. Excellent. He could just sit back and Enjoy, take the credit for himself, immense favor and fruitfulness, and yet humble faith. That's what we see here in Joseph. Humility and faith in God. He can't stop saying that word God. At every turn throughout this narrative, God, God, God. God is everywhere in his mind. And it is in every sentence coming from his mouth. God. God. The temptation is to elevate ourselves when God elevates us. That's what Satan wants us to do. When God moves in such a way as to elevate us in life a promotion or a success of some sort or whatever it might be. We are elevated in life. We know it's God's hand because nothing happens apart from God and God works in all the circumstances of our lives. And when there is an elevation in life, there is a temptation for us to be elevated in the heart. And we don't see that with Joseph. What we see is he stays humble, recognizing that God has done this. And here's what we need to see. This is why testing and trials are so helpful to us. Because those 13 years have helped to form and shape Joseph's heart to where when he is elevated, he knows it's God. He knows he didn't do this. He's seen God's providential hand working in incredible ways. He knows it could never have happened without God. He cannot give himself the credit. It's not even reasonable. Forget spiritual. It's not even reasonable for him to give God, or give himself any of the credit. So that's the fruitfulness. But now we come to the famine as we finish up this morning. 
Look at verses 53 to 57. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end. And the seven years of famine began to come. As Joseph had said, there was famine in all lands, but in the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt, to Joseph, to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. Now we come to the second part of the confirmation or fulfillment of Joseph's interpretation. This is the seven years of famine back in verses 30 to 31 that Joseph said would come upon the land. There would be a time of plenty and then there would be a time of famine. This famine is severe and it is universal. It affects all of Egypt and all the earth. Not just Egypt, but all the surrounding land around Egypt. But there is provision in Egypt. Verse 54, there was famine in all lands. But in all the land of Egypt, there was bread. The Egyptians cry out to Pharaoh and he directs them to Joseph. Joseph opens the storehouses in the cities and begins selling grain to the Egyptians as they come to him. Well, as you would expect, word gets out. To all the surrounding lands, word gets out that there is food in Egypt. So verse 57 says, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. So what do we do with this? What's going on here at the end of this passage? I think there are really three layers here in terms of how we ought to understand where this passage ends. So let me give these to you as we close. Three layers, three things that we must not miss. First, we see God's kindness. Simply. On the, very, on the surface, and these kind of go deeper and deeper, but on the, on the surface of it, most obvious to us is this bald fact. God's kindness in protecting many people from starvation. So it's a very general point here that God is saving many people from starving to death. Joseph says this very thing in chapter 50 at the end of the book. Chapter 50, verse 20. To bring it about, this is one of the reasons that God is doing what he's doing here. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive. So what is God doing? God is expressing his his care for people. Not just the people of God, but all people. God loves people. He cares for people. Every single person is made in God's image. No one is excluded from that. So we see his kindness in protecting them. Second, as we go a little deeper here to what's going on in this end of the narrative. Second, we're being prepared for something. We're being prepared for the re-entry of Joseph's family and brothers. God is orchestrating something here, right? I mean, you have this picture. You have Joseph in Egypt. 
and all the Egyptians are flowing to him to buy grain. But then we're told, moreover, all the peoples of the surrounding lands have to come to him as well. Well, who would that include? Um, Joseph's family living in Canaan. God is orchestrating rescue and relocation for the sons of Jacob. So it prepares us. But finally, and there's no better place to leave us than this, what we have in the case of Joseph, hear this closely, is universal need, universal need, and God is making provision for everyone through one man. They must go to him, as Pharaoh says. They must go to him and do what he says. They must go to him and listen and obey. This is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting to me that Joseph is here 30 years old. Now, the church fathers, they have a field day with things like this. And we have to be a little more cautious and careful in how we understand what is going on. Because the the early Christian interpreters coming out of Greek thought tended to be very allegorical in how they would come to passages. And so you can read some of their interpretations and you just are kind of like, eh, I don't know about that. Somewhat helpful. Thank you. Thank you, but no thank you. But it is interesting to me that The text is clear that Joseph is 30 years old. Now, we know that that's meant to convey a kind of time trajectory, right? It's meant to situate us. But isn't it interesting to you that the Lord Jesus is 30 years old when he appears on the scene? John the Baptist baptizes him. We also see here that Joseph is a minor fulfillment of chapter 12, verse 3. Do you remember that the promise that God made to Abraham, that that cosmic kind of sweeping promise that worldwide hope he says this to abraham at the very beginning of this abrahamic story at the very beginning of the patriarchal story verse three in you in you and he says later in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed So what we have here is Joseph is like a little mini fulfillment, right? Here's this one descendant of Abraham in Egypt and all these peoples, all these different kinds of people coming from the south in Africa, coming coming south from Canaan, coming from the east in Mesopotamia, from the west. They're coming from all around to find blessing here in Egypt from this one descendant of Abraham. This is what I'm saying to you. There is a universal need. And God has made provision for everyone through one man. One man. And the call for us this morning and every other day is go to him and do what he says. Jesus says at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the one who hears my words and does them, and does them, will be like a man who builds his house on a rock. The storm comes, the winds come, the waves come, and that house stands because it is on the rock. 
Not the rock of just hearing, mentally assenting, but the rock of hearing. And in the obedience of faith, doing. The call this morning to you is that you have a need. If you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. You need to understand that you have a great need. And it doesn't have to do with your relationships in life. It doesn't have to do with your finances. It doesn't have to do with your health. It has to do with a holy God who made you and against whom you have sinned. And the Bible says, blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Who is the man? Who is the woman against whom the Lord will not count his sin? Spotless and blameless and clean before this holy God, the person who trusts in the finished work of Christ on his or her behalf. Go to him. Obey him. Repent of your sins right now, this morning. Call out to God. God, forgive me. I am a sinner. I need a savior. Trust Christ. He came to bear sin guilt. Your sin guilt, if you trust him, so that all your sins are forgiven and you have the hope of eternal life with God forever. Joseph reminds us that the provision comes only through one man, the God-man, Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word for convicting us of our sins, for showing us our need for a Savior. We thank you for the life of faith that you've called us to and the empowerment that you have given us by your Spirit. We thank you that you are sovereign over nations and that you are with us in the pit. We thank you that in our elevation and exaltation, you are gracious to make us humble. You test us. You bring trials to us as a good, disciplining father, protecting us from ourselves. Father, we praise you. You are our God. Would all the peoples praise you? Would all of these people praise you? In Jesus' name, amen.